Good morning, church. Praise the Lord. Welcome once again to the house of God. It's just um, encouraging to hear one another sing to the Lord. Um, we trust that these are genuine expressions of praise to our King. Uh, just before we begin, um, just want to praise the Lord for last weekend that we had. Uh, Easter weekend, Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday, what a uh, privilege that was to gather together and to celebrate the death and resurrection and just be encouraged. And I hope that you're still reflecting on those um, thoughts that we were encouraged with last Sunday, encouraged by the resurrected Christ. I just want to invite you now, let's bow our heads, our hearts as we continue our worship and begin our study here. Father, we come before you, a God who sees, God who knows, not just remotely aware, but as we just heard, read from this psalm, you are intimately acquainted with our thoughts in our hearts. And so as we come before you and, and as the Spirit continues to work in us and, and convict us and encourage us, we just pray, Lord, that we would not try to hide. There's no reason. There's no point. It's impossible to do. But that we would just be open and that we would run to you who knows May we find comfort at the feet of Jesus this morning as we talk about our godliness and our righteousness, which we lack greatly. Encourage us this morning, I pray. Bless us for your sake. Amen. Well, as we turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, continuing our study here of this great sermon, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, I want to begin by asking you a very straightforward question. Why are you here? And, and don't get up and leave uh, just yet, but... Um, I realize that we don't often spend our Sunday morning before coming to church questioning ourselves why we do what we do on Sundays with our spiritual family. And we don't even answer this question sometimes in the privacy of our own hearts. Uh, maybe, maybe this morning your child, your son or daughter ask you this, you know, why do I even have to go complaining to get ready to go to church? And I see some of you guys are smiling, so uh, right on. We, we, we often have those discussions in our home. Why do I have to get ready and go? And, and maybe that question, as you were explaining to your child, maybe stimulated your own thinking and you began to consider, you know what, maybe he's right. Maybe she's right. Why do I do what I do? Is it simply because I'm used to doing what I'm doing? 
I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been doing this for 30 years, and, and that just, that's just what I do. Or, or maybe if I don't do what I do, then maybe someone will begin to question and ask, where are you? What's going on? And, and frankly, it's better to just show up in order to avoid uncomfortable conversations later. You see, the why of our Christianity is the foundation for the what. The why of our Christianity is the foundation for the what. What you do so often reveals only a partial picture. Why you do something matters to God just as much as what you do. In other words, why do you come this morning? Why did you sing this morning? Why did you just give to the Lord? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you discipline your children? Why do you choose your words carefully in front of others and maybe not so carefully when you really don't care about your audience? What motivates your living is the thought, is the theme of this morning's message. What motivates your godliness? This passage in front of us addresses this very issue in Matthew chapter 6. And church, I just want to remind you that nobody knows us better than our Savior does. Nobody knows us better than this good shepherd that we were just singing about, right? He knows us, and he will lead us to a places where he will expose us in order to remind us and to show us the genuineness of our faith. Brothers and sisters, church, friends, God not only knows the what, he knows the why. And only someone who knows us so intimately and thoroughly would warn us about doing the right thing in the sight of men while harboring right motives before God. The why matters just as much as the what, maybe even more, because it is the foundation, it is the spring out of which we do everything that we do in our Christian life. I want to invite you to begin reading with me in Matthew chapter 5, in verses 13, 14, and then we'll skip into chapter 6. Matthew 5, Jesus, right after he presents these blessing statements, the Beatitudes. He goes on in verse 13 and says, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and it gives light to all those who are in the house verse 16 let your light shine before men let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven 6 1 now matthew 6 1 beware beware now of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them Otherwise, you 
have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. As we take a look at these four verses here, I want us to to just center our attention on this one central theme that we'll be unpacking as we go through these verses, and that is this motivation. Motivation for godly living is rooted not in our pursuit of recognition. Motivation for godly living is not rooted in our pursuit of recognition, but in our pleasure of God. I'll read it again. Motivation for godly living is not rooted in our pursuit of recognition, but in our pleasure of God. I want us to think in in, in terms of three points here. Number one, God, Jesus here wants us, church, to, to beware of something. He wants us to beware of something in verse one. Number two, He wants us to be charitable, and he's going to tell us this is how you are to be charitable. So beware first, then then be charitable. And finally, he says, as you do that, be aware. Beware, be charitable, and be aware. And I want us to look at each one of these individually. Number one, beware. Beware. What are we supposed to beware of? Beware of your hearts. Beware of your heart. The very difference between beware and be aware is that one assumes danger. Whenever you, you go hiking, for instance, right, and you're, and you're hiking along some kind of cliff, and um, you'll never see be aware. There's a cliff. It's given. You will see beware. Why? It's assumed. A danger is assumed. Beware of something. And this is what the Lord wants us to see. Beware. This is how he starts out this chapter here in verse 1. Beware. Now, if if we had time to read through verse 18 all the way in chapter 6, we would realize that this opening verse, chapter 6, verse 1, functions as a heading for this, almost the entire chapter, not just these four verses. So what he says here in verse 1 will be applied throughout this chapter, through the entirety of this section. And I want us to zero in on a term that we already discussed here. The term in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness, your righteousness. Already we've seen this term mentioned in chapter 5 four times, and here it is fifth time. Beware of practicing your righteousness. It's a key Um, term here in this section. And you recall probably in in chapter 5, verse 6, go back to chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus begins in, in laying down the foundations for this kingdom that he comes to inaugurate. And in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
First time this term is introduced. Blessed are those who have this desire to be righteous, to do righteousness. And then in verse 20 of the same chapter, he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about this hunger for righteousness, this quote unquote surpassing righteousness. What is it then? What is it then? Beware of practicing your righteousness in verse one of chapter six. What is it? Well, Jesus went on in Matthew five to explain what, what it really means to be righteous, didn't he? And we spent the last month, over a month, just looking almost verse by verse through this chapter, what it means to be righteous, what it means to fulfill the law of God, to really obey the law the way it was intended to be obeyed. And Jesus, right after verse 20 and 21, he begins and he says, you know what? Real righteousness, real kingdom righteousness, the, right, the surpassing righteousness is not a matter of your external behavior, right? It's not a matter of physical act of murder or, or a physical act of adultery. It goes deeper than you think. It goes down into your heart. And so the surpassing righteousness, it's internal. It's what you and I can't see, but it's what's so obviously visible to the Lord. And Jesus, notice, later links this righteousness to his kingdom. If you go ahead a little bit, we'll get to this passage, but Matthew 6, verse 33, look what he says here, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what is this righteousness? Well, in the the earlier messages, I mentioned that this righteousness that, that Jesus speaks of and, and that the Matthew means is right living. It is a, a right doing in life that results in a right standing before God. It is your moral life. It's what you do before the Lord. Righteousness. Isn't that what, what Jesus means in, in 520? I want your righteousness to surpass theirs. Exceeding righteousness. And you need to have it in order to enter. In other words, if you don't have this righteousness that I require, you can't enter, so you're out. And it presents to us a, a real issue, a real problem. Because we know what the issue is. We're not righteous. We don't have this kind of righteousness that God desires. That exceeds the so-called experts. These leaders, we, we can't exceed them. Therefore, are we out? Yes, that's the point of chapter five. Jesus exposes our hearts, focusing on the, on the inner depravity that's, that's true, not only of them, not only the original listeners, but us here this morning. But here's the wonderful news, brothers and sisters, church, here's the wonderful news of the gospel. That is re- that which is required by God, namely the right doing in life, this righteousness to have this right standing before God and therefore to be in the kingdom is acquired by the right doing of Jesus, not ours. We, we know that we, we're not there. We know that we have 
failed. We know that we will continue to fail. Some of us have decided over and over and over to just stop sinning and and do what is right, right? We've done that in our lives and over and over and over. We realize that we can't. And so here's the gospel news that that which is required by God is acquired by us through the right doing of Jesus, which then results in our right standing with God. And you got to understand the sequence. We are not right. There's only one who is right, and that is Jesus Christ. We acquire his righteousness by faith, and therefore we stand in the right position now with God. And get this, because of this, because of this, we can now please the Lord because of a change in our hearts. We now do the right thing in order to please our Father. Listen, do you see how that works? It's not our righteousness. It's not our doing. It's never going to happen. And if you're here this morning, and I praise God you're here this morning, and maybe you're just here because you're trying to be righteous. Well, praise the Lord, but it's not going to happen. You need someone else's righteousness. That's what the Pharisees and scribes thought that they would do. They would just lower, they would just minimize the standards in order that our behaviors would somehow match. But Jesus brings it all back, unveils everything, and he says it's not about behaving a certain way. It's about being a certain way. Doing righteousness, practicing righteousness is a matter of being righteous. Look what he says in 548. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The reason why God does righteousness is because he is righteous. It's who he is. It's his nature. He can't do otherwise. It's about being. And then the doing follows. This is why the gospel is such good news for us. Being unable, being unrighteous, Jesus makes it possible for us to become someone, to behave a certain way because of his work, which one receives by faith alone. Not by doing, not by impressing, not by trying just a little bit harder, but by acknowledging that I can't, only Jesus can. And having this right standing with God, we have the power now to walk in God's righteousness Perfectly? No, absolutely not. That's why we need the cross. That's why every time we come here corporately, one thing that we do regularly is confess our need for Jesus. If it was just a one-time thing, we didn't need to. But we have to confess constantly, daily, moment by moment when we come together When we come before the Lord, one thing I confess, one thing we all have to confess if we're honest is, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. When? Every time. Every hour. I need you. Why? Because of our hearts. Because of our depravity. Because we constantly fail and we need someone who is perfect on our behalf. Now, what does all this have to do with chapter 6, verse 1? This warning. Well, pretty much everything. Pretty much everything because the matter is always the heart. The heart is the center. Everything goes back to the heart. Jesus continues to focus on what 
matters most, and that is our heart motives. Heart motives. Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Why do we practice our righteousness as Christians, as believers? We must not shy away children of God, from asking and probing and analyzing the motivations of our heart. It is not enough just to do something. It is not enough just to be somewhere. We have to, and as uncomfortable as it is, we really have to sit and we have to think and we have to ask and we have to ponder why, what is the motivation, what pushes me to do what I do? Why do you live godly? Why do you engage in spiritual activities, in religious practices? What's the point? What is the motivation? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I sometimes think that this chapter here is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us, and it will not allow us to escape. There's no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one, but thank God for it. The Christian should always be anxious to know himself, he concludes. In addressing their motivation, Jesus, Jesus turns to really the three most common Jewish practices. If you're going to be called a, a, a devout Jew in the first century, you would do these three things. You would give, you would pray, and you will fast. And so Jesus takes these examples and he analyzes and he probes our motivations. These practices here are all rooted in the Old Testament. And if you're careful to read the entire chapter, Jesus is not criticizing the practice. Jesus is not criticizing the practice, but he corrects the motive. The practice is good, but the motive needs to be adjusted. We need to address a deeper issue. He's asking his disciples. He's asking those who follow him, those who call him their Lord. He's asking them, Why do you give? Why do you pray? Why do you fast? Why do you do what you do? And therefore he begins and he says, beware of your heart. Beware. This word beware here is a command and it calls for this constant vigilance and watchfulness. Again, it's not a one time. Uh, The the, the tense that that Jesus uses uses here is, it's meant to, to give us this sense of, Constant, present awareness of this danger. Beware, constantly. Make this a regular habit, a constant pattern. Hold this warning of Jesus Christ in mind when you do things. And you might be asking, Jesus, why why so serious, you know? Just chill out, cool off. Friends, Jesus knows our heart. He knows every single one of us here this morning. And and that is the problem that he's addressing. What he's addressing is the issue of showy righteousness or spotlight righteousness. 
He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware of putting a spotlight on yourself when you do the good things that Jesus and that God calls you to do in Scripture that are rooted in Scripture. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Before men. I mean, we just read, right, in 5.16, he says, let your light shine before men. He clearly commands us to do things in public, to reflect Jesus Christ in public. He's not asking us to be isolated and secluded in our own rooms, in our own circles, make sure no one sees us practicing our faith. No, he says, you practice your faith. But there's no contradiction between 5.16 and 6.1. In 5.16, he says, shine. Shine brightly. Let your faith be radiant to all. Why? So that it can point to the Father in heaven. Live for the glory of Christ in public or private. Shine and make much of your Father. However, there's, there's a lot of shining going on as well. Here in 6.1, but the spotlight is placed not on the heavenly father, but it's on me. It's on us. He says, you practice your own righteousness, not for God's glory, but for your own glory. Look at 6.2. You sound trumpet so that you may be honored by men. That's, that's the only reason why you give so that you may be honored by men. This was the real epidemic of the religious leaders during that time. And brothers and sisters, if we're dealing with an epidemic, it's this today. In John 4, uh, 12, 43, Jesus calls them out, or John really, he says, for they, referring to the Pharisees, loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. For these people, the approval of men was more important more important than the approval of God. The honor of men was better than the honor of God. What men said carried more weight than the opinion of God. Pleasing people was more important than pleasing God. In other words, they made it seem like they were motivated by God's glory. Oh, brother, good job. Way to sing, way to give. Oh, all glory is to God. Praise the Lord, but what really happened in reality, they were concerned about themselves. And consider what Jesus says at the end of this verse. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. It doesn't say, right, that you will not get a reward if you seek that. No, you will get rewarded. You will get exactly what you are seeking. That's what he says here. You will get rewarded. Chapter 6, verse 2 says, you will have your reward in full. In 5, he repeats the same. And in 16, he says, your reward will be in full if you seek it. It's just not coming from the heavenly father. If you want men's applause, Jesus says, you'll get it, but that's all you'll get. Church, what about us this morning when it comes to, to you living out your faith what drives you? Consider your spiritual disciplines, reading, praying, gathering, worshiping, serving, to do anything in your Christian life that, that's worthwhile. What is the motivation for your passion? Why do you keep showing up? 
You know, our hearts often deceive us. One question you might need to ask to test your motivation is this, who am I when no one is looking? That may begin to address the real motivation. When there's no one to notice, when there's no one to comment, when there's no one to applaud, when it's just, when it's just you and the Lord. Are you the same in public as you are in private? You know, we often want to be thought of as godly people. And I am guilty as charged, even when at times we aren't. And that's a powerful motivation for our devotion. The idea is, if only people think that I'm holy, what would that do to me and my standing in the church between my friends? And just fill in the blank. That's a powerful motivator, but it's ungodly motivator. One way to check your heart is when you fail and when you fail in public. And God will allow us to fail in public. If we haven't failed in public, we will fail. God will expose our sins to us and to others. It will happen. Why? Because it is part of God's grace in teaching us something. But when that happens, when you fail in public, why do you feel terrible? Listen, don't, don't run away from, from this, from the desire like, oh yeah, I don't even want to consider this. I don't even want to talk about this because yeah, you know, uh, it's terrible. But consider why? Why do you feel terrible? Is it because of all the eyes that now saw what happened and saw me sin and offend the Lord? and screw up, and what will they now say about my profession? What will they now say about my Christianity? What are they now going to do? Or, or is it, why did I offend the Lord? I failed to please my God. And we all face that. We all have those thoughts. Others might not know, but Jesus knows. How easy do, to, do we allow sinful things to drive our devotions? Things like affirmation and other and pressure from others. You know, Paul says in Galatians 1.10, he says, for, I'm, for, am I now seeking, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Church, by definition, the servant of Christ will be hated and will be rejected by the world. If you desire to serve Jesus Christ, you cannot be infatuated with the world. You cannot be caught up with trying to get applaud from the world. You can't. Those two things are mutually exclusive. And whenever you decide and desire to bring those back together, our Christianity fails. It becomes a sham. We stop pleasing the Lord and we start acting like, hypocrites. God is calling us to analyze our hearts this morning. What motivates me to sing? Think about this, the ministry that you're involved in. What motivates you if you're a singer to come up here and to sing? Is it recognition? Is it just personal fame? Or is it 
desire to be used of God to worship him and to lead others in worship. Those of you who are of us who come here and read scripture and pray publicly and preach, what is the motivation for us? Why do we come here and do what we do? To be thought of as godly people is just a sinful motivation to pursue godliness. So the first thing that Jesus wants us to do is to be vigilant and careful and watchful. Not to make our religious practice a show, but as Jesus continues, he doesn't want us to stop practicing righteousness. He didn't say, you know what, man, since, since the danger is so grave of you while you're being righteous and pursuing righteousness to sin, stop doing what you're doing. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't want us to stop giving, to stop praying, to stop fasting in light of this danger, but he challenges us to properly give. So, verse 2, when you give, number 2, be charitable, but be charitable in secrecy. Just another observation here from this passage here. This passage is not primarily on giving. In other words, if you were really uh, considering uh, to do a study on giving, to study on offering, you probably won't necessarily go directly to Matthew 6. There are other passages that talk about giving and the manner in which you give in a lot uh, more depth, like, for instance, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you would go to that passage and you would talk about generosity and you would study that. You will obviously hit this passage, but that is not the primary intent of this passage. Jesus simply picks on giving and prayer and fasting to make a bigger point. And that is this, to emphasize the issue of the motive of our hearts. But nevertheless, he does give us instruction on giving. What should we not do first? Do not sound a trumpet. Do not sound a trumpet. Now, there's of all kinds of things written, what that means, what that may have meant back in first century, but there's no evidence in history to support the idea that these brothers were going around with a literal trumpet, and every time they would give, they would blast the trumpet like, hey, man, I'm, I'm over here, and I'm about to give, and I'm about to uh, donate, right? Um, that is not what Jesus is saying, but Jesus uses it probably as a figure of speech, similar to the phrase that we often quote today, don't toot your own horn. Don't sound a trumpet before yourself. Don't make a show out of your religion. When you give, don't announce your religion. Don't post your humble brag on Facebook. Don't Post it on Instagram either or Twitter. You know, don't, don't call a press conference when you're about to do something great. Don't give in order to be singled out and, and given a plaque of some kind, a picture frame, a name on the building. He says, don't, don't, sh- don't do that. Now, why did people give in the first century? Why did these religious leaders give in the first century? According to many commentators, giving to the poor had been carried to such unbiblical extremes that it was taught that giving would actually atone for your sins. So giving was thought of like this great thing. It was just similar to indulgences kind of. Apocryphal book, Tobit 12.8 says this, it is better to give to charity than to lay up gold for charity will save a man from death. It will expiate any sin. It will atone for your sin. 
So if you're a rich folk, you had better chances of being saved. That's why, if you remember this passage in Matthew 19, 23, where Jesus says, it is hard for a rich man, right? to enter into the kingdom, it says right after that, the next verse says, the disciples looked at each other and said, what? We're taught the other way around, that if anyone has a chance to be saved, it's the one who has money. Why? The more they give, the more gold stars they earn in God's heavenly bank, and therefore they can enter. But that's not simply the case. Why do people give today? I mean, such thinking is not foreign in our day. So many are motivated by religion, religious guilt, some gift to get reward, like tax return. It's interesting to think about tax return. Why do you think our state insensitizes giving? Like if you give, you will get something back. First of all, it assumes that men are evil. Men just don't give. But oftentimes we give in order, we know we're actually going to be asked to pay less. That's why. All kinds of reasons. And Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Stop pretending. Stop attributing these disciplines to godliness when you're using it to promote your own unrighteousness. This word hypocrite is a Greek term that was often used earlier for a stage actor, someone who plays, someone who puts on the mask. It's oftentimes what they did there. They didn't do all the uh, makeup and stuff, but they would put on the mask and they would play a role. And Jesus saying, all these guys are doing is just playing a role. Are we a bunch of actors here? Or are we genuinely concerned for God's glory? Godly given is focused on the recipient. It is done out of love and care and compassion. It is done out of a heart overflowing with God's grace and, and understanding of his own generosity to you. That's why you give. You understand, like Second Corinthians says, he gave me his son. He gave me everything so that now we would abound in generosity. But hypocritical giving When I give hypocritically, I focus on myself. I give to secure reputation. So Jesus challenges his followers, don't be like that. And instead he says, make sure your giving is in secret. Look what he says here. But when you give, you give to the poor. Do not let your hand know what your right hand is doing. He uses, again, hyperbole like he does in chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. Remember, cut off your hand. Cut off your hand and toss it. It's better for you to enter without the hand than be damned. He uses the same thing. When you give, make sure it is so secretive that you don't even know what you're doing. You yourself don't even know what you're doing. And sometimes we look at this verse and we're like, I don't know how to explain it. Let me maybe help you. If any of you are athletes here, like any of you play baseball, okay? When you take a bat and you stand there over a home plate and someone throws a 90 mile an hour pitch that crosses the home plate and you swing in the split second, you are not sitting there consulting. That pitch is coming, I gotta get my left hand this way, right hand this way, I I gotta make, no, you just swing, why? Because it's muscle memory. You musicians here, guitarist, pianist, um, you don't think about what you're doing. Why? Because your hands are trained. And when someone asks you, how did you do that? You just say, I simply look at the notes and I play. And you give me the notes and I look at the notes and I don't play. Why? Because I don't know 
what to do with these notes and how to make music. Some of you guys crochet and knit. It's exactly the same idea. You can spend two hours talking to one another, and all of a sudden, after two hours, you got a mile-long blanket there. How does that happen? You don't tell, okay, left hand, do this movement, right hand, do the, you, you're just doing it. And when someone asks you, how'd you do it? Hey, I was trained, I was taught, and that's it. I don't even know, and that's the whole point. When you give, when you give, you should not even know yourself, not only about other people. Just give as an act of worship and trust the Lord will do whatever he's going to do with it. Not for your own glory. Beware and test your heart motivation, friend. Express your devotion to Jesus by being charitable in secrecy. But here's another very important piece to the puzzle, and we'll end with this. What keeps us properly focused on our Christian walk? What aligns us as followers of Jesus to express this devotion to him? And number three, be aware of God's presence. Be aware of God's presence. He says this at the end of verse four, and your father who sees, and your father who sees. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Latin phrase, quorum deo, quorum deo. It means to be before the face of or to be in the presence of God. This phrase here, it, it, it captures the essence of our Christian life. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. All of our life is laid before the Lord. Everything. In our hearts as well. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. For all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. With whom we have to do. Everything is open. We read. Pastor Jan read from Psalm 139. Verse 7 and 8, where can I go from your spirit or, or where can I flee from your presence? In verse 4, you are intimately involved. Intimately involved. He knows you better than you know yourself. That's why at the end of that chapter, he says, Lord, just reveal it to me. I know there's sin here. I know my motivations are wrong. Reveal to me if there's any wickedness in me that I may repent and that I may know your salvation This is a fundamental principle for Christians to remember. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, I sometimes feel that there is no better way of living and trying to live the holy and sanctified life than just to be constantly reminding ourselves of this. When we wake up in the morning, we should immediately remind ourselves and recollect that we are in the presence of God it is not a bad thing to say to ourselves before we go any further throughout the whole of this day. Everything I do and say and attempt and think and imagine is, is going to be done on the, the eye of God. He's to be with me. He sees everything. He knows everything. There's nothing I can do or attempt, but God is fully aware of it all. Being aware of God's ever-present gaze focuses us on the right thing. It focuses us to ask and it pressures us to ask, how can I please my Lord? Brothers and sisters, motivation 
For godly living is not rooted in pursuit of recognition, but in our pleasures of God. And he says this, know this, your father, he sees what is in secret and he will reward you. He will reward you. Don't miss this word. This is another key term in in this sermon here. Reward. It's already mentioned twice in chapter 5. And it will be mentioned seven times in chapter six, three times in our verses here, reward. And Jesus here talks about two types of reward. Number two, or verse two here, he says, one reward is just being honored by men. Why is that a reward? Well, how many of us don't like to be recognized once in a while? We often, you know, like the kids desire affirmation and and attention, right? Don't we sit there in the back sometimes when someone else is recognized, oh, I wonder if he's going to say something about me. We have those inclinations. That's, the, that's our heart. God sees it. And understand this, there's a place for personal recognition. That's not what he's addressing here. I mean, we're called to encourage one another to love and good deeds, and, and one way is by recognizing God's grace in one another, by publicly addressing and, and recognizing. That's all good, but the question is, what is our motivation? Is human recognition, men's spotlight, our desire, and the ultimate reward? Is that it? If you're looking for it, you'll get this reward. But there's a second reward, and he says in verse 4, your father will reward you. Your father will reward you. One commentator said, there's no reward from God for those who seek it from men. And that's the difference, isn't it, church? Do you, like the Pharisee, believe that simply doing the right thing would earn you points with God? I just got to pray. I just got to give. I just got to fill in the blank. Jesus wants you to see that God is not pleased by righteous acts done ultimately to please others. He's not pleased by obedience that craves the praise of men. You want to be approved and rewarded by God rather than men? Absolutely. What is God's reward? You may be asking, what is God's reward? He's talking about reward. We talked about reward last time as Jan preached through the end of chapter 5 for us. Motivation, God's reward. What is God's reward? I'll remind you. You know what God's reward is? In Matthew 25, in just a few chapters, in verse 21, In the parable of the talents, in Jesus blessing the faithful servants, he says, you have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the ultimate reward. The ultimate reward is the joy. It is not anticipation of crowns, cities, streets that await us. It is the pleasure of God. And you will only have that church. I will only have that church when my heart is changed, when my motivations are altered, when I'm given a new heart to respond to God differently, to love him and to pursue that. I cannot do that in my natural state. Do we then earn eternal joy through our God-focused righteousness? We do not. But our God-focused, not men-centered righteousness gives evidence, as I said, of this genuine faith. Friends, because 
God is ever present and we're ever naked before him. He knows our hearts. He knows our true motives. He calls us. And he tells and he asks, what is driving our righteousness? We might be able to fool one another, but he is one not to be fooled with, right? Our hypocrisy will not fool him. Therefore, he says, and I tell you that we will be judged. These acts of unrighteousness will be judged. But who can stand? If that's the case, if God sees everything and he will judge us, who will stand before the Lord? And just look at this final thing. I just want us to see the relationship that Jesus highlights here between us and God. He doesn't present our God as a judge. He presents this God as our father. Your father who sees. Not as your judge who sees, but your father who sees. Thanks be to God. Be aware of God's presence. All men and women will one day stand before a holy righteous God. But listen, brothers and sisters, only those who come to call him father by God's grace, faith alone in his son alone have the assurance of forgiveness and redemption. And this is really where we need to be this morning. We've all been laid open. God knows our motivations and they're not what they should be. But praise be to God. That's why we need Jesus. That is why we confess him. But do we as Christians continue to cultivate proper motive for devotion? Absolutely. How? By daily looking to the Father and finding our pleasures in his Son. Motivation for godly living is not rooted in our pursuit of recognition, but in our pleasures of God, pursuing the joy that is ours now and will be multiplied forevermore in eternity. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We are broken. We are frail. We are hypocrites apart from him. Help us, Lord, I pray, to rely on Jesus Christ and be motivated to do things out of just pure devotion, pure pleasure of being called your children. Thank you, Lord. Teach us much. Transform our lives. That our religion would be pure. Knowing that you know everything. Submit ourselves humbly to you. Amen.